Hello. Welcome to True Hoop with me, Gerard Hector, and I'm joined by a special guest. She is the Andrew Mellon Professor at of Humanities at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and she's the author of The Book of James. See, I'm holding it up right now for those of you guys looking. The Power, Politics, and Passion of LeBron. Valerie Babb, welcome. It is my pleasure to be here with you. Well, I'm so happy to have you because whew, LeBron James, what a topic that is to oh, discuss. It. <laughs> it was a pleasure to write, I will say. <laughs> um, so I, I have to start here. What drew you to LeBron James specifically? Well, I've always been a fan and he came into the league so young. So it has been a while that I've just been able to watch this wonderful basketball player. After the decision and maybe even a little bit before that, I noticed that things started changing in terms of how he was portrayed in the media, how reporters were responding to him. And that became fascinating for me because I noticed that a lot of that was based on race, his being a black man and the type of black man that he is, who is unapologetic, not even interested in transcending race, but really in centering blackness and giving a primacy of place to it. So that's what really fascinated me about him. And the more he grows, the more he does. And I've realized that he doesn't just play basketball, he signifies with basketball. And that is what really fascinates me about him. Interesting. I want to get back to that. But uh, your NBA fandom, you consider yourself a longtime NBA fan and a lover of basketball. Where where does that come from? Oh, yes. Um, Let me put it this way. I'm a New York Knicks fan. Oh, well, I understand. And I date myself here because I actually remember them being a championship team. Walk, Clyde Frazier. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the, the, good, yes. the good old days. Yes, Willis Reed, Earl of Pearl, all of them, all of them. And I think we paid something like $11 as high schoolers going to see a game, right? The, the, the go- Valerie, those are the good old days. Those were I mean, the good old days, yes. I mean, m- much of that period, not a lot of positive to talk about but $11 to go see a game <laughs> when your game was very good right mm-hmm. <laughs> son of I Sam who cares right right exactly Black no, no, no. House, I... who cares <laughs> yeah yeah you know details details, details, details. <laughs> <laughs> I love it okay so LeBron and and really this book is about uh blackness and being black in America and it is also about anti-blackness right um and when you are an athlete how you navigate those spaces and how, as you mentioned, things switch on you over time. And mm-hmm. one of the areas in the book that really stood out to me, and this is something that's happened throughout the course of, of LeBron's career, is the comparison you draw between Kim and Michael Jordan, right? Sort of the archetype figure before him, right? Yeah. Um, and in one way, right, the description about Michael Jordan is he transcends race, which is a right. horrible phrase and whatever, but that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and LeBron is someone who, as you uh, so eloquently stated, like centers blackness at everything that he does. What a great, t- what great timing, right? To have the heir apparent be someone so diametrically opposed. And so, as you were, because you didn't talk to LeBron for this book, obviously, you no. went through Mm-mm. archival uh, right. interviews and read back, and the same with Michael. What did you note when you were doing your archival research on both men? What I noted was how present yet absent Michael Jordan was in coverage. He was there. He was there speaking as a player. He could speak as a Haynes spokesman. He could speak as a Gatorade spokesman. But there was no kind of like cultural component to that. From the time James steps on the court, 
even as a kid. One of his first um, commercials used a basketball court and a church. The Dimes commercial, I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember yep. that. We're going way, way back. There was that. There was the LeBron's series of commercials, mm -hmm. which were just yep. like any person in a black community knows every one of those <laughs> characters. So here he is. And it's not like saying I'm black, I'm here. It's just that everything in his commercial from the music to the settings is black. And I just find that such an interesting contrast. And both are commercially successful. Both are professionally successful. So it is an interesting question to think, are we seeing a change in time that made for that difference? Or is it just the two personalities that made for that difference? And I'm leaning more towards the second option. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's so interesting because, you know, the famous Jordan quote that everybody knows, which has been mischaracterized and misquoted now is Republicans buy sneakers too, right? right? This idea of being sort of very um, monoculture in that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, look, I'm for everybody. I'll pitch Gatorade. I'll pitch Nike. I'll, it, <laughs> it don't matter because I'm selling to everybody. And there, there is and still is to this day a broad appeal of Michael Jordan that exists because in many people's eyes and minds – He's not black, right? right. Even though and he it's is. precisely because of what you said. You know, I'm selling you all the things that you're comfortable with, that you're familiar with. So you should be comfortable and familiar with me too. And exactly. I think, you know, the McDonald's, the Gatorades erases that blackness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then when you look at James, you know, and you you in the book you you go through all the rises and and, and falls right if you, if you want to call mm -hmm. them falls and you know I've always said if the biggest mistake he's made in his career was the decision I was like <laughs> not consider <that>. considering <laughs> all the pressure hyped on him as a sixteen year old we first that's pretty and damn impressive fifteen when you 15, think about yeah. it right yeah. yeah because even before he became nationally known mm -hmm. all the hype had started in Ohio and in his mm -hmm. neighborhood right so you're absolutely right. In the public eye that much, being offered anything you want in the world when you are 18 years old, 17 years old, but somehow still being able to manage all of that and come out with the type of head that he has is amazing to me. Oh, I I, I, I say this all the time. Like, pff, that were me, I would have a oh, thousand percent <laughs> done a million stupid things. And it, and it is in a situation of, you know, single parent household. I, I came from a two parent, I come from a two parent household, like very well raised, but I know I would act a fool for sure. You got $90 million. <laughs> 90 million. I'm going to lose my mind. Exactly. I would too. I would too. <laughs> so it's interesting, right? So LeBron, you have the decision and that's when you say you noticed the change. Uh, I don't know if you remember, um, uh, right after that or the year or so after there was that book that came out from uh, Scott Rapp called The Horror of Akron, right? Yes, exactly. And I was like, wow, the language. Yes. And yes. The, the visceral reaction to him leaving. And I I've always talked about this with bands and various people we have on the show. There's this idea of ownership that bands oh, yeah. have with players, yeah, right? Exactly. That you belong to me and us. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but they don't. Mm -hmm. right? They are still people. <laughs> correct. Right, correct. Exactly. Exactly. But they're these commodities, right? Mm -hmm. And and that is the way that fans view them. And the minute they operate outside of that commodifiable uh, uh, way, it's when we have problems, right? And that, again, to go back to Jordan, 
he never really moved out of that, right? He no. always presented himself as player command, even when he was having beef with Jerry Krause about what he was doing exactly. with the team. Exactly. The fans were all on his side. They were like, all no. The media was also pretty much on his side as well, right? Exactly, exactly. So he is that kind of a star. Mm -hmm. And what really struck me about the decision, yes, there was all of the things that were directed at LeBron, but I was struck by the institutional response. The fact that the FBI, city police, um, private security, all of them coordinated so that he could go back and play this game in Cleveland. That says to me that something is going on deeper than just, you know, fans' anger at a player that went away. When you have to well, bring in law enforcement like that, something is up. <laughs> And coordinated law enforcement and like that. coordinated law enforcement, right. As a professor, um, you are also clearly, obviously, a student of history. I believe you're, 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 you're on both faculties, right? English and African-American history at Emory, right? So you African -American understand. American studies, yes. Okay. So you're on, you're, so you're on, on, you were a student of history. Yeah. Violence is baked in the DNA of this country. Oh, It is God. how it was founded. It is how power maintains itself. It um, might be our official language. I, you know, I think, I think well said, well said. How did you, or did you see instances, not of actual manifested violence, but where you saw tenants and sort of threads of violence as you were doing your research into how LeBron was covered, specifically verbal violence? Yeah. Yes, very much verbal violence. And the thing that was interesting about that verbal violence is I first looked at the reception that Jack Johnson got. Then I looked at the reception that Joe Lewis got. Then I looked at the decision. And you see that kind of language, that sense of you have gone beyond your bounds. You have stepped way outside of the lines here. You see that in all three cases. And I think it's that language and the expectation that there should be a kind of servitude and servility that should be part of your personality and who you are. And that is not any of these men, let alone LeBron James. So that's the other thing I find interesting too. Um, as you're talking about the nation's tendencies towards violence, towards racism, LeBron James is just the latest in a very long line of figures who really do show that we have not come as far as we think we have. I mean, for, that's for sure. I mean, we see, sadly, examples of that daily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so looking at LeBron and we know about the example of uh, the N-word being spray painted on as one of his homes in L.A., mm -hmm. Um, the literal burning of jerseys. I don't remember if it was him or if it was Kevin Durant when he left Oklahoma City, but one of them, someone held up their jersey and shot it with an AK-47 rifle. Oh, which, dear. I mean, that is signifying a person. Exactly. I mean, when, exactly. I mean, right, right. And, you know, you see the flames on a jersey. The jersey outlines a person's shape. So when you see those sleeves burning, you can clearly see it's something that was here. You know, you can clearly see a neckline burning. So mm -hmm. the humanity mm -hmm. is always present in those acts. And it's interesting when you look at a sport like basketball, right, versus any other sport. Boxing uh, also because there is a nakedness and openness you have in mm -hmm. boxing because, I mean, you're literally in shorts and shoes and that's it, right? <laughs> right. Like right. <laughs> th th there is a way that you're open. Um, mm -hmm. Do you feel like because of the way of, of the way basketball is and, and the players feel like they're so known that that lends itself towards the deep-seated feelings and animosity and negativity geared towards players? Um, Arthur Jaffa had said 
black people didn't invent basketball, but they created it. And part of what I see black basketball players doing, and I'm speaking in general terms, but is creating their definitions of who they are as black people. And I see this in the WNBA too. And a lot of that is unapologetic blackness, blackness that is happy to be itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that you only see that really in basketball because it has become so much a part of black culture and because what it is known as today could not have existed without black culture and black players. Um, the 1970s was a huge sea change for basketball, mm -hmm. and that was because basketball essentially really became black in the 1970s. So when I see these players, that's what I see. And I also think that is why people are much more hostile towards the NBA than they are to the NFL and even Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. uh, Major League Baseball is full of blackness also, but it's a kind of Latin American diasporic mm -hmm. mix, and mm -hmm. I don't think people focus on that as black the way they focus on the NBA as black. Um, the NFL, oh, uh, don't get me started. I love it. Let's go there. <laughs> go there. I love it. podcast for that, right? <laughs> but very different from the NBA. And just in terms of their owner structure, player structures, right. all of that. Right. Labor contracts, everything. Contracts, yeah. everything. So I think that is part of the reason that basketball does attract so much visibility. You with that visibility to the blackness, and then I think the hatred and the resentment just comes out of that. One of the ways you see it, though, in Major League Baseball is, as you mentioned, the sort of Latin American uh, diaspora, um, you know, celebrating home runs or playing the game with flair and being excited. And then you have a white establishment talking about that's not how the game is played. It's yes. unwritten rules. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, but we're talking about a game here, people. Like, Bob this is a Costa game. said the same thing about the NBA <laughs> when Julius Irving and all of those players played with flair. That's not really how the game should be played. And then he had to backtrack because they were right. such great basketball players. And he goes, well, they didn't sacrifice the game for flair. <laughs> and I would love to play his comments back to him today just so he could hear... I won't finish the sentence, but you can imagine uh, uh, where it's going. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it is, it's such an everyday part of language and culture that, and, and, and again, I think obviously all the stuff we talked about, racism baits in the fabric of, of America, violence, but it's in the media. It's how people talk about players and what they say mm -hmm. and, you know, just phrases, malcontents, oh, yeah. players that want to control the yeah. league, like inmates running the asylum, like right. all these phrases right. that just exactly. get thrown out exactly. and people just accept this. Oh, yeah. And oh, people yeah. know what you're talking about. This the, is the headlines problem. after Malice in the Palace. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my Even God. that title, Malice in the Palace, you know, right. you can yeah. see the media runs with that. Yeah. Yeah. This episode of True Hoop is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hey, guys, Gerard from True Hoop here. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do? It's a hell of a question. Would you maybe go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? Now, depending on the day, any one of those would be a great idea. Most of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Now, I've been open in the past with you guys about this. I see a personal therapist as well as a couple therapist for my partner and I, and both are extremely helpful in developing positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. Therapy empowers you to be the best version of yourself. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TrueHoop today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TrueHoop. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it's crazy. One of my favorite parts of the book um, is when you, you talk about Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Um, <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and you said, at a time when the NBA was trying to hold on to white eyes, Jordan brought a non-race presence to the culture of basketball. Many liked him because his blackness was not in your face. The racist <laughs> Pino of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, nonetheless, reveres Magic Johnson, Eddie Murphy, and Prince, explains what, the way non-black culture seeks to enjoy black talent without black people. That's right. Pino in the movie. <laughs> It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggers. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. And everyone who's seen that movie knows that part, right? Because he's really trying to squirm his way around. But what are you saying, really? Right. right? right. And uh, listen. And the more he tries to clean it up, the worse it gets. Digs deeper. And I think, honestly, so many white fans probably feel similar in their minds and would articulate it the same way. Yeah, right. And I think in our day and age, that articulation is shifting to overprivileged crybabies. Mm -hmm, So race mm -hmm. isn't really mentioned, but the resentment of Mm -hmm. the money these black athletes are Mm -hmm. making Mm -hmm. and making that money, and especially today, realizing that it's their skill that's producing this game. They have a right to that money, so they're not going to be humbled about mm-hmm. this. And I think that mm-hmm. irks quite a few of people. Yeah. You mentioned that there's always a need um, by the larger establishment for uh, black athletes. And this is where the anti-blackness comes in is that, you know, you need to be thankful that we allow you yes. to exist in this. Not, <laughs> not that your talent and hard work and <laughs> no, none of that no. matters. No, <laughs> no, we have allowed you to operate in this space and right. be whom you are. Be grateful, which means I don't want you talking about police violence. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) That means you can't talk about police violence. You can't talk about rage. None of those things that, right, we hear it all the time. Stick to sports. Right. We want to come to sports and escape all that. But, of course, the the history of sports is interwoven with every (laughs) class struggle, race. I mean, every struggle. And always has been. Sports has never been a place where you come to escape from life. I think sports magnifies life and we kind of figure things out as we watch players on a field or in an arena and our emotions change our racial attitudes change um some people finally are less racist because they have watched basketball some people are more racist because they have watched basketball so a lot of it is really just our projections onto these athletes and that i think is what we tend to forget it's not always the athletes doing something it's what we think of what they're doing yeah uh, you talk about LeBron uh, here in this book, and it's, you know, I uh, believe it, it's either in the description about the book, either in the introduction was like the things that he does are done with a purpose and not necessarily performative. Um, and that is one of LeBron's critiques, right, um, is that he's always cognizant of the camera being present and everything he does is for uh, effect, right? There, it, it's, it's, it's done calculated. And I would argue he does do things very calculated, right? I mean, no one with that kind of, um, and he is, as you point out in the book, he knew this early on, he was a business the minute he stepped foot yes, on the court. Yes, yes. Right? So when you are at now, according to Forbes, a billion dollar <laughs> enterprise, 
you gotta move slightly differently because you have you have an, an impact on many things. And I also think that's kind of a false expectation that we tend to put on black people. You know, that somehow if you are aware of what you're doing, aware of how you're presenting yourself, you're not real, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. you are. And I think that is just wrong. When I hear you talking, I think, yeah, that's exactly what he should do. As you point out, he's a billionaire. When has this man not been in the public eye? So, of course, he's going to be very aware of being in the public eye. Of course, he's mm -hmm. going to be very aware of the performative effect of his actions. When you say something on Twitter and 90 million people come down on you, you know, when mm -hmm. you say something in an interview and 90 million people come down on you, maybe that's why you yeah. calculate before you say or do something. <laughs> right. So I don't know why that expectation is there. And I think it's another way of kind of trying to corral and control. Mm. It's also kind of insulting. To say that someone is performing, to say that someone is aware means that they are using their brain cells. They yeah. are reading the landscape around them, and that is what someone should be doing. So why do we take offense when that's happening in a black athlete? And I will say perhaps a black male athlete even uh, more uh, so. I, I, I really like where you're going there. One of the areas that this brings up to me is the controversy that ensued um, over the Hong Kong situation with uh, yes. former Rockets GM Daryl Morey, now head of the head of the Philadelphia 76ers. I can't and, keep up. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this expectation that LeBron come down on, uh, you know, the Chinese government and mainland China for the various human rights violations and all the things that go on While there. While he's in mainland China. <laughs> right. <laughs> If I would say Not that then, <laughs> right? Um, and then again, but if you look at that situation, right, it was a white man, right, who in the NBA power structure, depending on how you look at it, some people would view higher on the pyramid, right, because he is oh, a, yeah. a, a team executive, even though the person that generates the dollars and the person who actually matters and makes the money is LeBron James, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at it, so it's it's this weird dynamic, Isn't right? It but yes, it truly Darryl is. Daryl was able to skate away with his comments, right? But LeBron had to come out and denounce everything, and oh, he's a puppet yes. for Nike because his shoes are made there. He's got to sell movies, <laughs> exactly. and it's like the <laughs> tough thing we do. There we go, and there it is again. You know that immediate visceral public response to just about anything he does, and the situation was far more complex. You know, a lot of the players were held in their hotel room, were not allowed to go to events that had been scheduled. So there was mm -hmm. pushback in China mm -hmm. and that didn't get any coverage in our media. It's also fair to say, and this is through no fault of the players on, because you, you, this is the same of any person walking the street. How many of them are actually informed on what is going on over there, right? <laughs> right. They hear right. something. I mean, how many of these, these players, I mean, and I know because I'm in locker rooms and I'm like, some of them do, but not a whole ton of them are tuned into world politics and events. They're just not. It is the most embarrassing news segment on local news when a reporter goes into the street and asks random people who the president of any country beyond the United no States idea. is. No idea. No one knows. If they even know where that country is. <laughs> well, that's another thing. <laughs> it's amazing. Right. So you're absolutely right. You know, you're expecting someone to know things that everyone doesn't know, expecting someone to have information at their fingertips that they don't have. And that's just crazy. And again, I ask why. 
Well, I, I'm going to go there. Why do we have this expectation, right? So when LeBron was in Miami, if you remember that ESPYs, it was him, Bosh, and yeah. Wade. Um, and they this was um, after uh, Trayvon Martin was shot, right? Mm-hmm. And there was the I Can't Breathe hoodies. They made the, the speech at the ESPYs. All amazing, so amazing things. Yeah. But LeBron got so much pushback for well, when you were in Cleveland, you said nothing about Tamir Rice when that yeah. happened. Why? And it's... And it's this odd thing because I can even find myself sometimes being like, but dude, Cleveland, the place where like you have so much gravitas and pull, how are you not aware of what was going on right there? Was it maybe you were too young then and you didn't really That's know what you what wanted I to say? I think we forget, you know, because by the time he's being asked about Tamar, Tamir Rice, these are important national issues. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. We're talking about police brutality. And he's essentially 12 years old. I mean, he's just a few years out of high school. That's a lot of history that he has to learn before he can really comment. And as you point out, he's a man who's thoughtful. He thinks before he will do something, and it takes time to do that. So I give him a little bit of a pass on that because most people, even well into their 30s, can't handle the kind of responses he gets. How can you be the most loved athlete and the most hated athlete in the same poll, right? Yeah. Which lets yeah. us know how, how polarizing he can be to some people. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that's the perfect word. He is polarizing in that mm-hmm. way, right? He doesn't elicit n- non-emotion. It's no. either strong no. one way or the other. Like No one yawns, right? <laughs> never. And, and that, I mean, and that occupying that space as a human being has yes. got to be difficult, like Very much on a so. daily basis, right? Every time I sneeze, exactly. it's national news. It is. And then you're also trying to raise a family, be a husband, be a son, all right. of that as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The ordinary things we all do. No, it, it, it's a lot. How do you think black athletes, you know, because as you talk about in the book and you point out so well, you know, you never escape your blackness, right? No matter what, like you can be top of the charts in terms of dollars, but this is this piece of you that never kind of goes anywhere, right? You mm-hmm. can't hide it. Um, but is there a point where you're making so much money that you just get so detached from what is actually happening, right? Like you just live. Your, like, I mean, LeBron lives in Brentwood for crying out loud. Like, I mean, like yeah. you know what I mean? when he goes on vacation, like he shuts down entire like you know resorts <laughs> and rents out whole huge super yachts and like right. things right. that average people can't comprehend. Mm-hmm. And I think. For me, that becomes a difference between blackness as a racial category and blackness as a cultural category. Mm. Blackness is race, as you know, I think as any black person, certainly in the United States, maybe abroad knows, is kind of heavy to carry sometimes. But black culture is what really kind of allows you to be able to carry that burden. The things that are black because black people have chosen them to be black not because it was named black by an outside viewer. So with LeBron James, I think that he plugs into that very public blackness. He's not weary of being black because for him, being black is beautiful, if I may use. Yeah, yes. For him, being black is full of good culture, good energy. And that's what he embraces. So I think that you do have athletes who want to run away from blackness because they understand blackness only as this kind of racial label. I think LeBron does exactly the opposite. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very, very well said. Um, what have you seen, uh, 
as you were writing the book, um, the later stages of LeBron as, you know, I always say, well, you know, retirement's coming soon. I'm like, is it? I don't know. <laughs> he might, might play another five oh, years for all, for all we know. So he's, he's 50. Who knows? I mean, I have a, but, but what have you noted uh, from him and his relationship to blackness as he's aged? Um, I liken it to Beyonce in a way in that early in her career, right? Destiny's Child and an early Beyonce stuff. So much of her music was about selling records right and like a better word but i mean that's that's the business right you you have to you have to make money but now beyonce unapologetically makes black music like mm-hmm. the, i mean she has not had a crossover number one hit in i don't know how long right but she's arguably made her best music the last decade the last, or so, i agree right I agree. and so if you that's why i always see this kind of similar in like they're just, they're fully in. They're just, yeah, this is it. And they're just embracing it more. Is that what you're seeing with LeBron? That is what I'm seeing with LeBron. And it's beautiful to see someone with the resources he has fully embrace it. So yes, there is, for example, the I Promise School mm-hmm. and the network that surrounds it, the mm-hmm. affordable housing, the mm-hmm. halfway housing for people who needs it, who need it, excuse me, the um, kind of community center where various corporations have come into partnership to serve the community, to do, um, oh gosh, um, vocational education Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and things like that. So I love to see him using his resources to deepen and make better black life. But I also love the way he uses his resources to publicize black culture. Um, The entire enterprise of his media company is that the movies that he makes the platforms that he sets up for athletes to talk about other things um, besides being on a court being on a field being in arena so i love seeing people black people with means using those means to put blackness even further ahead and further into the prominent vision of the public too yeah for sure i mean a great example of this of course as you know is what he did with Rich Paul, um, oh yeah, Maverick Carter, mm-hmm. right. um, Randy Mims, Spring and Hill, right. all that, right? Mm-hmm. It's incredible, and I remember all the backlash that that <laughs> received at the time, right? We, we all know oh the, my the, 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 the posse comments by yeah. Phil Jackson. By we know, Jackson. oh, Le- Le- LeBron's getting his. And listen, anyone who is trying to learn a new environment, like Rich Paul and these guys, and who disrupted, right? They didn't go to college and get law degrees and do the traditional mm-hmm. right and it's you're an academic so you understand the process of they disrupted the whole thing it's going to ruffle feathers if someone does that there, automatically i think bomani jones had the best quote about them they made the powers that be look like the powers that were mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think that's, that's exact and then the fact that they are young and that they are black and doing this mm-hmm. and doing it well uh did we mention the billionaire word, I think, earlier in our <laughs> yeah, conversation? Yeah, yeah. So apparently they know what they're doing. And what I really love, too, is that every single one of them says, we did this on what we know from our community, from talking mm-hmm. to our people. Mm-hmm. When he was at Nike, Maverick said, they invested nothing in me. I got nothing out of that. Rich Paul at um, Creative Artists said, mm-hmm. they invested nothing in me. I got nothing out of that. And we see they were learning. They were looking and they become the perfect example of, well, the potential that so many corporations and so many elite schools just walk away from because they don't look a certain way or present a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you no, do that at your own peril, frankly, right? I mean, well, especially now if you're an especially agent and, and, and you're looking right. at clutch clutch sports, you're Thank like, you. I mean, 
CAA and the, the big behemoths are not like sweating, but if you're anyone else of that tier yeah, of the exactly. of the next tier, you're like, damn, Rich Paul's yeah. got a way in which he connects that we can't. But look at the fact that they made the Rich Paul law. They mm-hmm, rescinded mm-hmm. it, but they had to make a Rich Paul law that an uh-huh. agent who didn't go to college can't represent a player. Yeah. What yeah. was that about, really? Yeah. We, well, we, we know <laughs> we what, that, know was what about. that was about. right? It, no, it, it's at every turn. You know, I was thinking about, you mentioned LeBron's I Promise School, and, you know, they, they had some negative press uh, recently yeah. over uh, poor test scores. And this is, again, that example of what you talk about in terms of violence and verbal violence and the way in which all the articles scathing, right? Headlines. It's like, oh my God, LeBron school, the kids of all, none of the kids have, have you know, been at like a whatever well, competent reading level. But without understanding, well, these are the poorest and most uh, educationally disenfranchised people that exist. They're already coming in three to four reading reading levels below where they should be at to begin with. Throw yeah. in COVID on top of that. You're the people <laughs> with the least means. Exactly. Um, it's. I'm sure you know the, the 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 example of this, right? Where you take, you know, third grader from an affluent community, third grader from a non-affluent community. The the, the loss in learning that the person from the lower uh, economic situation comes oh, from yeah. because they don't get enrichment and all that stuff over the summer exactly. versus the one who has all that when they come back to fourth grade. Exactly. Starting behind the eight ball. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, there's another kind of violence. We've been talking about the violence of language. I'm going to talk about the violence of educational testing. Mm. These kids are being tested and written off. The articles that are saying, oh, they have horrible test scores is essentially repeating the same information that these kids have heard all of their life. But what's being talked about are their performance on standardized tests, and they're not making that mark. If you look at those tests that test student progress, student readiness, student personal growth, the I Promise kids are acing those tests. What they're not acing are the state standardized tests. So there is growth, there is progress, they're doing well, but we have again that system that is saying, okay, you can do well here, but unless you come to this category Mm -hmm. and meet these Mm -hmm. standards, then you're not really worthy. And to take on something like that, uh, you know, oh, yeah. you have to give LeBron a ton of credit for the vision and the willingness to mm-hmm. do this. Because again, the, these are the most, the most disadvantaged population of children that exist, right? In the and world. it's a public school. You know, yeah. it's not a private school. It's mm-hmm. not a charter school. It is mm-hmm. using one of Akron's existing public schools and making that better. You know, if every wealthy person adopted one public school and did what he is doing, we would really have a kind of educational reform going on. Is that the next step you see for LeBron? Can he do that? Can he can he galvanize? Not maybe not necessarily with it yeah. education for each thing, but you know, one of the things I think about is when the bubble was happening a few years ago mm-hmm. down in Florida. I think Pat Beverly was interviewed and he's like, Yeah, uh, when whatever LeBron says we're doing, that's what we're doing, right? And everybody kind of knows when he says this is the thing, well, this is the thing. And I wonder. Right. Can, is that the next thing for him? Can he use his still amazing influence to be like, no, guys, this is what I think we all need to do. Everybody can contribute differently because you all don't have the same money, but mm-hmm. we need to invest in education as a group or something like that. My question is just, what is it going to be? Yes, would be my answer to your question. He will put some vision in place. I just don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And, that, I mean, and with his mind, who knows what that will look like? What a tremendous legacy that would be if he was able oh, to yes. do something yeah. like that. Yeah. And in that way, right, he 
to go back to Jordan, right? He's so much more ahead of Jordan in that regard. In that sense. And if that's how you measure the GOAT. (laughs) (laughs) That conversation ended a long time ago, right? Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As 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 we as we start to wrap here, what are what are you looking for for LeBron on the floor um as the (laughs) as as he ends out the rest of his career? I mean, you're a basketball fan, so you're watching the team what's going on. (laughs) Okay, you know, even as I watch the Lakers this season, I'm still hoping for one more championship (laughs) from somewhere. I don't know how I pick the teams I pick, but (laughs) anyway. You you, you like players. One more. Yeah, right. One more championship on the basketball court for me would be great. And then I just want to see what he does with his life. I want to see the book that I would really want to write next is What Made Your Mind, LeBron? How did you become Mm -hmm. the way you are? Mm -hmm. How did you Mm -hmm. become so disciplined? How did you Mm -hmm. become so visionary? Mm -hmm. Um, What did Carmelo Anthony calls him? Lab baby. (laughs) And I think that's a perfect, (laughs) perfect description of him. And I want to know, how is that created? Um, I think the, the thing that he is talking about a ton that's very public, he hasn't shied away from, is him wanting to own an NBA franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's such an interesting path for him to choose because, again, it would be following Jordan in a way, yeah. right? Uh, you know, for whatever you want to call it, Jordan's oh. tenure as an owner, an unmitigated <laughs> disaster, right? Like, I mean, the Hornets, horrendous. Like, uh, there's no positive spin we can really put on I it. got nothing, right? I mean, uh, if you want to be positive and say, yay, black billionaire <laughs> owner, okay, cool, but <laughs> terrible. And he was cheap as hell, like all the things, right? Right. I wonder if he does become a sports owner, does he become, does he keep his same mentality that he has now, or does he do what most people do when they get in that position, which is they start acting in the best interest of the billionaire class, right? I am going to go out on a limb here. Mm. Maybe I'm naive, <laughs> but what I'm picturing is him possibly redefining what owning an NBA franchise mm. might look like. You know, especially if, and this would be beautiful irony, somehow that franchise is the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the animosity Dan Gilbert has towards him, I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Because it'll have to get through somebody else's hands first before it gets to LeBron. (laughs) But I can imagine him owning a franchise and then linking it to an educational initiative that he has started Mm. in a school district. Linking it to a community initiative. Mm. You know, the um, House 310 in Akron. I can Mm -hmm. see him taking that and moving it into whatever NBA facility he has Mm -hmm. and really just making even the space of an arena something different. So... If he does that, I don't know how much the structure of the team will change and all of that, but I know that he'll put some spin on it that I don't think he could. I don't really think from everything that I have learned about him, he could live with himself if he went to the Mm. values of the billionaire class. (laughs) And I mean, listen, it's hard once you're there to not expose some of the values, right? Oh, yeah. It's the nature of the business. (laughs) It's the nature of the business. And then the larger question is, can money fix everything? You know, um, if you are a black capitalist and even though you're willing to spend money on good things, the fact that you're a capitalist Capitalist, kind of undercuts everything you're doing. So there's that quandary, (laughs) too. And, you know, how will he navigate that? Um, He's not going to give back the money and I wouldn't either. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. it. Yeah, no, that's true. As Dave Chappelle points out, we have just 
got this money. This money is new for us. Yeah. It's going to take us a while before we decide. While, right? All right, let's give some of it back. Yeah, well, I do think he will. He'll think that through. He'll, he'll do something. Guys, I encourage you to go out and get this book. The Book of James, The Power, Politics, and Passion of LeBron, Valerie Babb, the Andrew Mellon Humanities Professor at Emory University. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank today. you, Jared. This has been a true pleasure. Thank you. All right, guys. We'll see you later. Take care.